Hello, everyone. How are you doing today? I'm Gilad, and I lead the data science team and uh, the analytics team at BuzzFeed. Uh, and I'm so, so excited to be here, uh, share this stage with so many amazing speakers. Uh, and it's really encouraging to see how well filled this room is. A few years ago, a machine learning track in this kind of trendy tech conference would probably have a tiny little room on the side. Uh, but it's clearly a topic that uh, many of you care about, and I'm so, so excited to be here. So I want to tell you a little bit about how we use uh, data at BuzzFeed and some of the trends, uh, positive and uh, problematic trends we're seeing around machine learning and the advances in artificial intelligence. So over the years, BuzzFeed has invested a lot in building up our data capabilities. Uh, we collect every single piece of information that we can about every content that we publish both on our owned and operated, our site, our apps, as well as distributed platforms where we operate heavily. And we believe it's invaluable. It gives us all these capabilities. And I'll dive into some examples, very specific examples, of ways in which we use data, this historical data, to provide information to managers so they can make informed decisions around content creation um, and curation and distribution. But we also use this data to train machine learning models to uh, add efficiencies uh, to our processes. And I'll, I'll discuss some of those uh, as well. Many, in many cases, these tools are used to automate tasks that previously may have been laborious or very manual. So we do, we do think there's huge value in integrating a lot of these services. And they give us the ability to scale. Um, so we, we, in a way, we believe that we get all these advantages from leveraging data science, from leveraging machine learning. Uh, and in a way, they, we hope they give our team superpowers, ways to see our audiences and connect. But we also recognize the consequences of using some of these techniques, especially when applied towards information, when you rank information on newsworthy content in social feeds. This is an example of an in incredibly polarized conversational space that's very common to see. This one's from Instagram, specifically. And your position in the graph dictates what kind of information and coverage you'll see. So these algorithmic uh, systems are ranking people based on who they follow, what they engage with, and further pushing you content that aligns with your worldviews. Right? So that's why we're seeing all this, we're seeing increased polarization on these, uh, within these digital network spaces. And we also live in a world where the sheer idea of the existence of truth is in question. Like, does truth actually exist? Can we, can we hope to find truthful information? It's hard to identify trustworthy information. And trust in me media and journalism has completely eroded. Right, so for example, when you search for Hillary's health, uh, this is what you see, this type of manipulative propaganda. And this appears at the top page from Google, from YouTube, from Facebook. It still appears. And this, this is remnant conspiracy theory content published right before the last uh, US elections uh, by an organized network group who are trying to seed doubt in Hillary's ability to, to serve as, as president. So data collection is so commonplace. It's not a collection, inference, modeling. So many companies do it. And it's, you, rarely, you rarely think about the consequences of your actions as you're implementing some of these techniques. Like where companies, many companies are trying to justify data collection for some potential 
future business opportunity where they don't necessarily always know what the opportunity is or what the consequences of collecting this data may mean. So it's so easy to say, hey, I'm just a data scientist. I'm working on optimizing this objective function without thinking through what you're actually enabling. Do I need to remind you of Cambridge Analytica? We can talk about that later, too. So it's a hot mess, I agree. Where do we even begin? It's so easy to say, all right, I'm, I'm just going to do my job. Maybe someone else will solve all these problems. But we cannot, we cannot let that happen. We are all responsible for finding solutions and for working through all these complex issues. So what I'd like to do today is talk to you a little bit about some of the advantages we're seeing and how we're leveraging data uh, at BuzzFeed and why it's important for media companies to do these things in order to, uh, to maintain uh, their ability to be profitable uh, and have a sustainable business model in this day and age. But at the same time, I'll talk about some techniques we've used to mitigate for some of these consequences that I've touched on. So you've probably heard of BuzzFeed. There's so many types of content that we create in, in so many places and a variety of brands from quizzes uh, around uh, the web to posts about unique, weird things that are passed around on the internet. We have this incredible investigative uh, news team that covers important issues around the world. Uh, we even have our morning show, morning news show, that's hosted on Twitter. It's called AM to DM. It runs every morning uh, Eastern time. Uh, there's something on BuzzFeed for everyone. We have cooking content. We have entertainment content. Um, and it is the leading, we are the leading independent digital media. We operate across the web. A few more examples. We, have, uh, we run investigative reporting. Some of our stories, Pulitzer finalists, and take years to fully report on. A more recent content experiment is the Good Advice Cupcake. If you've been on Instagram, and how many of you have seen Good Advice Cupcake? You're way too old. So, so the Good Advice Cupcake is, is one of our, we run many content experiments, and it's a fairly recent one. It has over 2 million followers on Instagram and has all these sister accounts now. Um, but what's so incredible about it is just the level of engagement we're seeing with audiences. So what it is is an illustrated cupcake that gives advice to readers. So it takes in questions and follows up with different advice. You broke up with your boyfriend. You're trying to feel better about yourself. There's a piece of advice for everyone, and we see massive engagement on these accounts. Instagram came to us and was like, what are you guys doing? How are you, how are you getting this engagement? Another uh, fairly recent experiment is a show we're running on YouTube uh, where Kelsey, uh, creator at BuzzFeed, uh, took on the Sims 100 Baby Challenge. Have you heard of this? It's where uh, you're playing the Sims, and this is on our multiplayer channel. She's playing the Sims, and she's trying to get 100 babies, to make 100 babies in the game without killing them, right? And sort of, sort of getting them through, raising them pushing them out of the house, and then making more babies. It's hilarious. It's amazing. And the engagement on this content is just incredible. And what she does really well is listen to audience, take into, take into considera uh, consideration their recommendations, and integrate that into the next episode. Um, there's been almost a billion minutes viewed on the series so far, and we're just at baby number 20. So BuzzFeed, over the years, has invested in this massive distributed content network. We have our own set of websites and apps, 
But we also have these re really big presence across the social web. On Facebook, we run some of the biggest pages. Tasty, you may have heard of, that's BuzzFeed. Um, on YouTube, we have really successful channels on Instagram, on Snap, on Pinterest, on Twitter. Right? So anywhere where there are audiences, we operate, and we take these platforms seriously. And what's so unique about BuzzFeed is, is we see every published opportunity, uh, every publishing event as an opportunity to learn something. So ingrained in the culture of the company is really this idea of this, this learning cycle. We publish, we learn something about what we published, and then we iterate on our hypotheses. And obviously this process has to be fueled by data. We publish, get information about the event, uh, and learn, hopefully learn something about the publishing event and then iterate on our hypotheses. So we use machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, techniques across the board in many, many different ways. We optimize our site and app experiences. Right? We use AI to optimize to suggest content audiences may want to read later. We recommend content for users. We predict which content may go viral so producers can double down on their successes. We categorize content, we cluster it to understand what we're creating and the jobs to be done for our audiences. And we create content, this is a lot more experimental. We use uh, artificial intelligence to come up with ideas for what our creators may be interested to cover. So here's one example, something very common that most media companies do. So we A-B test continuously, right? around the presentation of the content. And so in this case, we're A-B testing the way a piece of content appears in a feed. So what you see uh, is it's the same item, the exact same item, but in one case, we have a long paragraph before the image, and in the other case, we have a short paragraph explaining what, what the story is, a short head. Who thinks A will perform better than B if we're looking for clicks? A, who thinks A is better? Okay, who thinks B is better? <laughs> All right, you are correct. So significantly better performance on uh, variant B, and it is the winner. We have these Bayesian systems that run, continuously run these tests and take into account a variety of uh, combinations of title images. And what's so interesting is that these systems are built into our CMS, so into the process of publishing content. We also have algorithmic ranking systems across the board that power uh, different parts of our site, power which images appear, power which content you'll see, uh, help resolve A-B tests. So, and we see all these like, really important uh, and great results from this learning at scale. We can reach audiences more effectively by leveraging these techniques. Here's one example of places where we've used the advances in artificial intelligence to try to create content, so learning from, in this case, is all the recipes that we have on Tasty and trying to let the AI come up with its own recipe. So this came, uh, in this case, it came up with uh, pineapple pizza nachos, serving four, and all the, you know, all we fed uh, the, the AI are, um, you know, historical uh, recipes that we have, our corpus of recipes, and it understood that you need a set of ingredients, you need to identify how many servings, uh, and, uh, and then you need to show the preparation steps. So on the surface, this looks like it could live on Tasty, but as you look at some of the instructions, it's very clear that we need, there's a lot more work that needs to go into this. 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's funny, it's interesting, we're definitely experimenting in this space, but this, these aren't replacing our creators anytime soon. Here's another example uh, that's very BuzzFeed, uh, unique for BuzzFeed. It's around curation. So we operate on all these social platforms. Uh, and in the case of Facebook, we have over 100 pages. Some of them many, many tens of millions of uh, followers on pages. So huge audiences. And in the past, we've had uh, humans, editors, sort of curating these pages. And as we've grown, it just it cannot scale. You cannot have people fully curating all these properties. So what we've done is taken our historical data and tried to apply towards uh, some modeling techniques to, to start recommending and, and automating some of the curation. So here's a common question that we may face as a data science team. We have three examples of articles. I don't know why the title didn't appear there. Chili dog bread ring, uh, 16 cows that are too friggin' cute for words. Which pages should we publish them on? So the naive approach as a data scientist would be to say, all right, let's build a naive Bayes classifier. We'll look at all the words that appear in the title. We'll rank them. Uh, and co common words that have appeared on the animals BuzzFeed page will give us a higher score for new content that we may consider to publish on that page. So we look at adorable, dog, bear, and all these words that are highlighted are, are, would be used to to justify whether a piece of content belongs to a page. Well, this doesn't really work, does it? Because it also recommends chili dog bread ring as uh, content that we would want to promote to BuzzFeed animals. So here's where the advances in, our, in artificial intelligence can really help, where we deploy a recurrent neural network, which can take into account these interdependencies between words and make it very easy to sort of take in all these um, taking all these titles, understand the relationship of words against other words and titles, and then make predictions about whether we should use a piece of content on a piece of page. In this case, Chili Dog Bread Ring has a 20% relevancy score to the animal's account compared to all the other titles. So it clearly, we should not uh, publish this piece of content on that page. And so we use similar techniques to power this smart publishing process that we have in a set of tools internally, some of them fully automate publishing to pages, and some of them make recommendations to editors and curators who then choose whether they want to act on them. And we apply it to relevancy, which I just talked about, evergreen, identifying content that we can reuse and republish. Uh, we predict performance, and we take into account human uh, curation signals. So, all these, I, I showed you a, a few examples that we really believe are important and give us the ability to scale our business, to reach audience, to understand audiences at the scale. Uh, and integral to that is collecting data, running inferences on the data, right? Making predictions, uh, and uh, ranking content, right? In order to scale and reach uh, users. So how do we build trust and how do we uh, make sure we mitigate for some of the unintended consequences of applying some of these, uh, some of these techniques. I'm going to talk about some of these, some of the ways we found useful. So data collection. I want to take you through an example, a very specific example around data collection. I don't know if any of you have worked with location data, but it is um, very common for applications, especially ones running on your phone, to by default collect your location data. 
And what many claim is that, oh, it's, there's no PII. All we're doing is collecting latitude, longitude, and a timestamp, right? So if you look at your Google Maps history, if you enable uh, location collection, this is what you see. You see a set of uh, data points with uh, timestamp, latitude, longitude, and a, a few other, some other metadata that it collects. Uh, what's troubling is that, especially in the ad tech world, location data is being pitched as the savior of advertising. It's the ultimate way to get to understand what a user actually does, where people go, right? And so, and, and, there, and a lot of this data is sold without users knowing. So I wanted to investigate and see how quickly I can take a data set that's supposedly non-PII and find and identify uh, PII. So here, a few simple steps for anyone who wants to try. You clean and explore the data, right? You sort of uh, maps, map some trends in the data. You extract what I use is geohashes. So you take in latitude, longitude, and um, map that onto a square, right? Which is called geohash. It's just a way to organize and cluster your data. You may enhance the data with some probabilistic model. Like it is likely that you are in venue X or venue Y given the geohash. Uh, you, you run some time series composition, so what are the seasonal and daily trends? Where is this person at night? Where are they during the day? Uh, you identify top locations, super easy to do. Use Foursquare's API, Google's API, whatever. There, there are many very easily accessible options. And so very quickly you identify home, work, school, bank, right? Um, you join with external data. Right, there's uh, uh, additional ways to get uh, uh, external data, and you very quickly get to their car, you get to images of their house, you can find Facebook page, uh, you can find whether they've taken mortgage or not. Right, so, so, so you jump from supposedly non-PI data to very personal information very quickly, um, and it's not hard to do. And so what I realized through this process is that the act of surveillance is not just about collecting data. We're so focused on, oh, what data is being collected, but actually interpreting it and making inferences on it. So as we're thinking through uh, uh, some of these processes, we also have to ask ourselves what inferences and what processes, how are we manipulating and using this data? Um, it's important also to recognize the effect that anomalies have, like in many cases, I, I, when you're looking at location data, you can very easily identify a person by some anomalous activity, like they visited a, a house all over the holidays. Oh, that's likely family member, right? Uh, and then by joining multiple data sets, you can uh, very clearly result in PII. So again, we, we so, so much of our focus when we talk about some of these consequences is the act of data collection, but we should also consider the inference that we're making and how we're joining this data to other data. So we decided not to collect location data at BuzzFeed. And while we make uh, location uh, data available at, at high-level granularity, we don't have this low-level low granularity available, even though we could probably have made some business case uh, we decided it's not worth it. So another very helpful, uh, um, very helpful uh, process that we found uh, is scenario building. So we think of when we pitch a new product to make, we think of what is the worst thing that someone could do with this product or with this data if we collect it, right? What is potential harm that could come to users? 
And we've in integrated it into our RFC process. So as we're suggesting uh, that and making recommendations on what to invest, we envision the worst case scenario. And it's been a really, really useful exercise. Another thing we focus on is analysis and reporting. So BuzzFeed uh, News has continuously reported on misinformation, manipulation. It actually coined the phrase fake news, uh, which was Craig Silverman uh, reporting before the US elections on how uh, people, teenagers in Macedonia actually, were manipulating users in the States and making a lot of money uh, by pushing certain agenda. Um, so we focus on educating our readers and, and really highlighting some of these things that are happening. Here's one example. Um, there are many ways to manipulate ranking on Facebook, and this is a case of a user that's just continuously posting content. And if you browse over this account user, you may think, oh, they, they look like they're a real user. They have, a, they have an image, they have a name, they're connected to other users, they're posting all these content. But when you look at the, the actual, um, th their actual behavior, you, you can almost approximate it by a linear function. And that's when uh, you can, there's probably some automated script involved. So we report these issues to Facebook. Um, we also, we, we think about our role as a media company and we've run a number of uh, experiments thinking how we can push our readers outside their bubble. So we used to have this module on site where we take a uh, um, newsworthy event and we highlight different opinions. We've also turned that into a show on Facebook called Outside Your Bubble. You can all watch it. So we try to find ways to, to get our readers to understand these issues and really sort of uh, um, understand that there are, they are further pushed into these polarized spaces online. So I know I've said a lot. I've talked about the, um, all the advantages that we're seeing uh, by using some of these techniques and some of the consequences. And it's important to sort of take into account some historical context. Uh, in her account of Eichmann in Jerusalem, philosopher Hannah Arendt detailed how divorce decision-making can happen across a system of processes. Right? She described Eichmann's displaying neither, like he, wasn't, he didn't feel guilty by the actions that he'd taken, nor was he feeling hate towards those who are trying him. He claimed that he bore no responsibility. He was just doing his job, right? As business owners, as funders, as practitioners, and as data scientists, we all have responsibility. We cannot simply do our jobs. We have to ask questions, and we have to make sure that we push our companies to make moral and ethical decisions. And so, savior or destroyer, I think, I think we've yet to see what the outcome is, but I strongly believe that media companies need to utilize some of these techniques while at the same time, we all must recognize our, all of our responsibilities. Thank you.